You're listening to Felony Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. The Felony Podcast explores ex-felons that have gone on to launch their own startups. We explore the ups, the downs, the behind-the-bar stories with these founders. Felony Podcast airs every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All right, ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Felony Inc. Podcast. Welcome to another exciting edition Broadcasting live from my living room in Portland, Oregon. And oh, we have another scorcher on deck today. It is officially summertime for real now. Um, here at Felony Inc. Podcast, we live in a society that houses the largest inmate population on earth. And the current cost of mass incarceration via the prison industrial complex is incalculable. So anything that can be done to help curve the recidivism rate is incredibly valuable. And that's what we attempt to do here at one show at a time and one guest at a time at Felony Inc. Podcast. As always, I'm joined by my favorite co-host, Meg Thibodeau. Meg, how are you doing today? I am doing okay, Dick. Staying cool, but you know I like this heat, so I'll take it. Summertime forever. <laughs> well, we got at least another month left, for sure. For at sure. least, right? We get, we get, what, one and a half, two months of summer here in Portland? Yeah, about that. <laughs> um, today's going to be a great show. Uh, actually, I'm really excited about this guest. We have Carol Alden, who is an artist and affiliate of the Justice Arts Coalition. Uh, Carol is an amazing artist. Um, Carol, how are you feeling today? We're doing great. We're uh, dodging the forest fires, and the chickens are happy with their new swamp cooler. A little hotter there in Utah than it is here in Portland. It sure is. And well, glad you're staying safe, Carol. We're so excited to have you today. Well, thank you. So, Carol, uh, typically how we begin the show is uh, we talk a little bit about um, kind of your upbringing, uh, what led you on the path of like getting involved in arts. Uh, what I saw that was really interesting is you were actually born in France. Is that right? That's correct. I was born in Orleans, France. Um, actually, in they had turned the monastery uh, that is attached to the cathedral that Joan of Arc first went to um, into a military hospital at one point. So that's where I was born. So your your family was involved in the military, obviously. Yeah, my father was briefly. Okay. So how long did, were you living in France for? Ooh, my mom and I came back on the Queen Mary when I was about six weeks old. Okay, so it was very fascinating. <laughs> it was a real. So quick yeah, time. I lost my accent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and then when you moved back to America, you came to Utah, or what happened after that? No, my dad finished his degree in Ann Arbor, Michigan, so we were there for a couple years. Then we uh, went to uh, Moscow, Idaho, and from there to Fort Collins, Colorado, and then New Zealand, then back to Colorado, and my first marriage is what took me to Utah. Okay. So um, at what point did you start kind of getting involved with arts or finding that you had kind of an affinity for artistic stuff? I'd say that was from birth. Um, I was constantly scanning the environment, looking for what I could do to make something out of something. And it didn't matter if it was rocks or twigs or mud or, you know, whatever, whatever was at hand. Um, I loved working with clay when I was a kid. And, uh, you know, my parents were kind of uh, perplexed by it all. But, you know, I persevered and it really wasn't until I was in high school that I had a, an art teacher that said, you know, you could probably do this as a living. <laughs> you know, you're, you're one of the very few students that actually has the drive and the ability to make this work for you. So that was kind of a pivotal, mo pivotal moment for me as far as thinking about art as an actual um, life path. Did you continue education in art? No, I have no education in art whatsoever. Your story is um, so fascinating. You really seem like a, an outsider artist. I love the, 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 I read something in one of the articles when we were researching you about making your own way with crochet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Forget learning crochet, just make up your own, make up your own. Yeah, aggravation is the mother of invention. Um, <laughs> I <laughs> did not learn how to crochet until I'd been in prison for three years. And 
even at that point, um, you know, somebody tried to talk, talk to me about it and teach me about it. And after about three hours, I was too embarrassed to admit that I didn't get it. And, uh, so, you know, I went back to my cell and just fiddled around with it until I had made something that would not fall apart. And by morning I had a salamander. And after that, probably two weeks after that, I sent a fish to a museum. So I'm kind of an idiot savant when it comes to crochet or perhaps I crocheted in the previous lifetime. So, <laughs> so back to high school where your parents, once you found this art teacher, um, did your parents become supportive? You were, you always sort of, you know, kind of out and doing your own thing. This sounds like an innate personality trait or spiritual trait for you. It was, um, it's, I, you know, it's one of those things where you feel like you'll just die if you, you don't do it. Um, but no, I was not supported in it. Um, it was considered, um, well, my dad called it artsy fartsy and said that people that are artists are just people who are too lazy to do what they ought to be doing. So I'm sad for him. Yeah. I would, you know, I would get up in the middle of the night to do artwork and that, that ended up having my light bulb taken away and then my door taken away and my art supplies thrown away. So it was, it was a difficult time. What do you think that that, um, that resistance, how does that resistance feed and show up in your artwork? Well, I'm very determined to keep creating no matter what. Um, I mean, that basically trained me for what I dealt with in prison. Um, and especially in Utah, they do not really support any kind of creativity at all. You know, it's you have SWAT coming through on a regular basis and taking things away. And every time I started a project, somebody would say, oh, well, you can't do that. And I was like, watch me, you know. So I'm very determined, no matter what my circumstances, to keep doing something, whether it's something that gets my emotions dealt with or that puts a message out there or that just keeps me busy and mentally sane. Art is it's, good for that. <clears throat> absolutely. It's kind of ironic in a way that your father used to try to punish you for doing art and take away stuff. And then you find yourself years later in prison kind of yeah. dealing with almost the same exact situation. Yep. Yep. And then, you know, you translate that into what we're dealing with now with all the limited opportunities. I mean, before this uh, COVID thing hit, I had stuff scheduled back to back from April through Christmas as far as artist residencies and exhibits and speaking engagements and things. And all of a sudden it's just gone. You know? So you That's just got out, Carol, after like 13 years this year. Yep. Am I correct? Yeah, Will you I, got, tell us, I mean, I have so many questions for you, but a little summary. What is it like to get out and have all of those plans and be finally ready after 13 years and being a full grown mother of adults, ready, you know, having to start over and getting released into a world that's just ground completely to a halt? Yeah, it's well, to begin with, well, I got out about a year ago. So I was just starting to kind of get things rolling. And when you're in prison, you don't really have anything to do but plan. And so all of your energy has gone towards these very intricate, specific plans. And, you know, I was just starting to, to get going on those. And that was, that was one thing. But I was also basically like a time traveler. I'd never even had a cell phone before. Not, not to mention a smartphone. I had no idea how to deal with anything. I was basically Amish. And so just the anxiety and the stress behind everything else um, was just nuts. And then to have everything just disappear, and it's like, okay, so that 13 years of planning, it's like, <laughs> you know, now what? So... You know, I'm just kind of back into, it's almost like feeling like I'm back in prison, gearing up for when the next opportunity is going to present itself. And I have no idea when that will be or in what context it will take. And, you know, in meanwhile, trying to deal with family relationships. And um, I mean, it was on, my release was unexpected. So my kids 
were kind of in a state of shock, I think. They weren't, it's almost like they weren't ready for me to be out emotionally. They weren't prepared. Um, they wanted to be able to help me, but they didn't really have the resources to do so. And so there's a lot of guilt, you know, that kind of filters through things and that, that hampers relationships to a great extent. How was your release unexpected? Will you give us whatever you're comfortable with in terms of the context of your prison time and how you got there and all those things? So I'd been married to this person for a year. He pretended to be kind and loving and supportive, etc. And turns out he's a professional con artist and he had actually done this to other women. He'd had like five wives before me who are all dead but he would try to defraud them of their money or whatever resources he thought they would have and he realized that I didn't have any money and so then it became this daily uh, struggle to just stay alive he was angry he wanted to be rid of me he wanted to be able to sell my house um, he tried to kill me multiple times um, I was in a very patriarchal rural area of Utah there was no support as far as for domestic violence victims. Um, I called multiple times and got no help. Um, we were separated briefly. Well, we'd separated that day. And he told somebody he was going to come back and kill me. And so I purchased a firearm. And that night, after he had attacked me and had me cornered, I did shoot him. And he died. So... It turned into this media fiasco because it was a, an election year for the attorney general. And so all of a sudden I see myself being portrayed as a black widow murderer and uh, looking at a 20 to life sentence. And uh, I spent a year in the county jail fighting it. And uh, I had a, a, a public defender who unfortunately was also an alcoholic, and he ended up dying in a driving accident after my case. But I ended up taking a plea bargain because I had no, no idea how the criminal justice system worked. Um, so I really didn't have any support in any of that, and I basically gave up. It's like I figured I didn't have a chance. If I didn't have an attorney, you know, what do you do? So after the plea bargain was signed, I ended up going to prison um, in 2007, and I was there at the Draper site near Salt Lake um, until 2014. Then I was taken to the uh, county jail facility up at Wasatch. And they do this, they have this thing where they call counting you out, where they will pluck people out of the prison system and house them in county jails, which can be very problematic as far as, you know, exercise and mental health and being able to get any kind of medical attention, or in my case, having any art supplies. And so it was just a real shock to me to be in the county jail there after all those years in prison. And because you're not allowed to go outside every day, you don't really have jobs like you do at the prison. Um, yeah, county are, jail is rough. At my prison, they used yeah, it for, uh, um, for punishment. Yeah, yeah. And to take somebody there that had like seven years left to go, I mean, <laughs> that's just nuts. You know, they, they expect you to create. Yeah, they really do. How long did but, they have you there, Carol? I was there for five years. You're in five county years. for five years? Yeah. Yeah, I would have been there for seven if I hadn't been released early. Oh, that's just plain torture. I'm so yeah. sorry. This whole story, I'm so sorry that you have had to deal with this. The system has failed you greatly. The culture that's has failed you greatly. I'm so very, very sorry that you've had to, to do all of this. And I'm so glad you have art. Yeah, I am too. You know, it's funny. My parole officer said the exact same thing. He said, uh, there's absolutely no reason why you should have gone to prison to begin with. That, that it was a travesty and that he personally apologized to me that I have to deal with the system. And, of course, I'm on parole now. And so that hampers you know, what I can and can't do considerably. 
So but, talk about your art. We you've you've been doing art since birth. You have this this on top of everything else. It sounds like you know intense life experience on top of intense life experience. Yep. Um, how did you? So you get out of prison. Tell us how you have. Wait, no, actually, we should go back. Tell us about because you have a win, a significant art win while you're in prison, right? With Fish House. Tell us about yeah, that. Yeah. Well, this was kind of. Kind of funny. Um, I had this idea that I wanted to build a tiny house and I wanted it to be a traveling studio and I wanted it to reflect the type of artwork that I did. So I designed this tiny house that looks like a deep sea fish. And to begin with, the materials that you have are kind of limited. And I had collected all kinds of scraps of yarn and things and I needed something to create a more um, firm form to put the yarn over to hold its shape. So I was at my commentary job one day and there's this big box that gets delivered and I look at it and it's full of um, AR-15s. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. A commentary in prison. Yeah. yeah. And so I go and I alert the officers and I say, you know, there's been a delivery that I don't think you want me to have access to. <laughs> and they're like, oh, my God, you know. So they come down, they remove the guns, um, but they left the box. And then we were they were having other issues. And so they kind of just spaced out that I was down there by myself for so long. So I took the box apart and I used that box to create the interior structure to attach the yarn to so that I would have rigid walls and a floor and whatnot. So the, the reason why I was doing a three-dimensional model was because I kept talking to my kids about this project and I wanted them to be excited about it too. I wanted it to be like a family project when I got out. And you know how kids are, they're kind of like rolling their eyes going, okay, mom, whatever. And I thought, well, <laughs> yeah, sure, mom, you're going to live in a fish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if, if you are going to get somebody excited about something, you want them to see your vision. So I made this three-dimensional model for the sole purpose of showing to my granddaughters and my kids. And at some point when it was finished, they came and picked it up and, you know, took it home with them. Well, months go by and I get this notification about an exhibit that's going on through the Museum Association in Salt Lake City. And I think, man, I really want to enter that. So I called my daughter and asked her what she still had of mine that she could enter. And she mentioned the fish house. And I said, you know, I really don't feel like that's professional enough for this venue. You know, I want to do something different. Well, I told her I didn't want to enter it. She didn't listen to me. She entered it in any way. And then, lo and behold... One day, the officers call me on the intercom, and they say, you have a phone call. Come to housing. Okay. Now, to begin with, you don't get phone calls in prison unless somebody in your immediate family has died or something horrible has happened. Right. So I'm, like, immediately pretty much hysterical on the inside and trying to hold it together, wondering which one. Ooh, I still get emotional just thinking about it. <laughs> but so I go out there. And the officer has this just smile on his face and just hands me the phone. And this cheerfully chirpy woman on the other end of the phone says, oh, is this Carol? We're so happy to talk to you. We just wanted to let you know how, how thrilled we are to have your, your piece in the exhibit. And I'm thinking, what piece? <laughs> and she says, and we'd also like you to know that, you know, we have awarded your fish, fish house um, best of show and the uh, state museum association would like to purchase it for their permanent collection well i'm just still trying to process that's a roller coaster of emotions yeah yeah i'm surprised i didn't have a stroke right then and there yeah and so at any rate the money that i got from that was the only substantial money that I had the entire time I was in prison. At that point in time, I had a job that I was making 86 cents a day. And so I utilized that money to purchase a derelict 
1975 Dodge motorhome as soon as I got out in hopes of tearing it apart and using the framework and engine as the basis to build my first fish house rendition. Amazing. That is a huge win. Yeah, that is just fantastic. I bet that daughter is super tickled that she went ahead and didn't listen to you about that entry. (laughs) Yes, I will probably never hear the end of that. So this seems like a good place to pause real quick. We're going to just take a break for an ad to pay some bills and we will come right back and keep talking. This hour of the Startup Radio Network is supported by Bridges to Change. Bridges to Change's mission is to strengthen individuals and families affected by addictions, mental health, poverty, and homelessness. They use their voice and resources to stand up to all forms of discrimination, mass incarceration, barriers to health care, and inequitable economic opportunities. Bridges to Change's goal is to empower people to be self-sufficient and become members of the community, who in turn offer the same opportunities to help others. They strive to have everyone leaving their organization with stable housing, social support, sustainable employment, education, access to health care, family engagement, and goals for the future. To get involved, donate, or to get help, make sure to visit www.bridgestochange.com. All right, welcome back to the Felony Podcast. If you're just joining us, our guest today is Carol Alden. Uh, artist and affiliate with the Justice Arts Coalition. Uh, Carol, we were just talking about uh, how your crocheted fish house artwork won uh, actually a pretty major award uh, while you were still currently incarcerated. Uh, one thing that I'm yes. really curious about, beyond the fact that they allow crochet needles in prison, um, when I think crochet, I think when the average person thinks crochet, you think of like when my grandmother would make like doilies for the couch or just right. maybe uh, coasters. What what inspired you to do 3D crochet artworks? Did there, was there someone that you saw doing that or was that just completely out of the blue? And just That was, I've always been a sculptor and so I need to make three-dimensional things. I see things in three dimension. So for me, the challenge was, okay, this is the only handwork form that we have. So how can I manipulate it in a way to satisfy my desire to do something three-dimensional because all I was seeing people do were afghans and you know booties and slippers and hats and the occasional teddy bear which I had zero interest in doing any of that stuff and for Um, folks that don't know that are listening crocheting is just an absolutely very common and prolific prison pastime at least in women's prisons oh it's even more so in men's some of Isn't the, it? Oh yeah, some of the most. Did fantastic. you crochet, Dick? No, I, I think I used to make like God's eyes in outdoor school. That was about Did as far you? As but you way. didn't crochet in prison. No, <laughs> I never crochet. I never <laughs> even heard of that before in my life. Oh really? <laughs> you know, yeah. it really depends. It depends on the facility you're in because a lot of facilities don't allow it. Yeah, and we don't right. technically have needles. We have what's called a crochet hook which is about the size of, it's shorter than a pencil. One end is rounded and then it has kind of a kind of a lip on it so that you can grab the yarn. But the ones that we have are plastic. And so they break very easily. And we had a matrix where we were only allowed to order one crochet hook every like 32 days or something. So That's interesting. Yeah, we had full-size crochet hooks in prison. They were plastic, but they were definitely longer. And then the knitting needles were kind of a very different sort of softer situation. Yeah, we weren't allowed to have knitting needles at all. Yeah, those are just, those are definitely uh, weapons, but. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. So uh, just out of curiosity, it says in your bio that from 1991 to 2006, you worked full-time producing sculptures for exhibits and fairs? Yes, uh, I did. How did you get involved with that? Like, you want to give me a little background on that if you can? Well, a lot of it, you know, when you're first starting out, you just find the little, you know, local exhibits and, you know, you enter things, win awards, kind of, kind of grow your way up. But I did a lot of educational exhibits for 
the uh, local libraries and children's museums and um, schools as well, where I would do large-scale soft sculpture pieces. Um, I did a lot of educational programs with reptiles and amphibians, and so that was kind of the focus of quite a bit of my work. But really, there's only two big arts festivals in Utah. One of them is Park City Arts Festival, and the other one is the Utah Arts Festival that happens in Salt Lake. And I'd been involved with them for quite a few years. I basically went in one year and said, this is what I would like to do. And kind of showed them a sketch of a giant uh, sea dragon that was floating on the reflecting pool behind the main branch of the library. And so they, they said, yeah, that would be awesome, you know. And they cut me a check for materials. And I went and bought a welder and about 2,000 feet of steel and went to town on it. And that was, that was the last thing I did right before I went to prison. But that piece was 18 feet tall and 90 feet long and had 20-foot fins that went out to either side. So a lot of it was just self-promotion, where you just go and, and approach some organization or some entity and say, hey, look what I can do. And, you know, I, it would be good for you if you hired me to make your event look even more awesome. And so I usually didn't have to pay booth fees, which was kind of a necessity because I was raising five children and was a single parent a good part of that time. So that was, that was kind of the beginnings, and that was how I sustained it. Um, after my divorce, I spent some time soliciting um, support from like companies that made the kind of paint that I used. And I would send them photographs of my work, and they would sponsor me. Wow. And that was how we kept going for a period of time. And that's when, fantastic. When yeah, Go what you're referring to is the the 96 foot long uh, steel dragon with translucent wings that was uh, in the 2006 Utah Arts Festival, correct? Yes. Yes. And uh, one other thing is, you actually beyond just working on art for 15 years, you actually began to teach workshops and soft sculptures. How did that become? Uh, kind of a thing with no formal training, anything like that. You just became teaching yourself. Well, some organizers of, there was a group called Dollmakers Magic. And then, there, well, there were several of them. I can't even remember all the names of them at this point. But they would hold these international fiber arts symposiums where they would bring in, like, the top teachers of different techniques from around the world. And, you know, people would come in and, gosh, people would pay about 800 bucks for you know, five-day seminar just to take these these classes. And somebody had seen my work in a local gallery, and they asked me if I would come up and do an exhibit at, at one that was at a ski resort here in Utah. So I put my work up there and was immediately just mobbed with people saying, well, why aren't you teaching at this? I was like, well, I don't know. I never even knew it existed. So the, the year after that, I was, I was one of their invited teachers, and I did that for, oh, I guess about six years, where I traveled around the United States, and the year that I went to prison, I had been scheduled to go to Canada and Australia and uh, Germany and the Netherlands, and so, <laughs> you know, it was a really big hiccup in my career. <laughs> to all of a sudden be taken out of circulation. Things were really starting to take off for me at that point. So it's it's really strange now to be starting over from scratch where you know, people really have no idea, you know, what I what I can do or what I have done. How did you become connected with the Justice Arts Coalition? My mother found them online um, about two years before I was released. And she had some conversations with Wendy Jason, and uh, Wendy contacted me. And I was pretty hesitant to have anything to do with them. Uh, you know, we get these little flyers from different things all the time in prison that are advertising groups that 
supposedly promote inmate art. And I had written to quite a few of them over the years and had sent work to quite a few of them. And basically most of them are a ripoff. You know, they just, they really go out of their way to just take advantage of inmate artists. They take your stuff, they sell it, they raffle it off, whatever. And I mean, you don't even get a thank you, let alone any kind of remuneration for the work that you've done. So I was very, very leery. And uh, it took me about a year of talking to Wendy before I said, okay, I'm going to send you a bunch of my original work and trust you with my babies, basically. And um, she was the one who actually got me hooked into all these different events when I first got out. Um, she had me going to speak at the um, California Lawyers Association meetings in uh, Santa Clara two weeks after I got out of prison. And boy, that was a shock. Oh. But so we've had a really wonderful relationship since then. And I do what I can to point other artists who are still incarcerated in her direction. And that's an organization that is well-deserving of any support that anybody can scrape up. Sounds like it. And uh, we're actually going to be interviewing Wendy here in a couple of weeks. So I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah. She um, is like the advisor bunny. I've never seen anybody work so hard in my life to try to create opportunities for other people. I'm really looking forward to talking to her. Uh, and, and honestly, we wouldn't be talking to you if it wasn't for her. So it kind of all works, right. it works together. Great. Right she now. recommended you. <laughs> We're very grateful. Absolutely. Um, so, Carol, it says that you developed a body of work that reflects the experiences of women dealing with domestic violence and the legal system. And uh, these works have been invited to international exhibits and conferences on prison reform. Um, could you kind of elaborate on that a little bit? Well, one of the first drawings that I did when I was in jail was an image of a nude woman impaled in bar with bars, kind of in a framed by a, a window. And she also, her head is also in a vice. And in the background, it's like you're, well, it's like you're looking out onto the scenery you know, this kind of idyllic, you know, rolling green hills with the sun setting and a path leading away from you that has um, bloody footprints and the silhouettes along the horizon of your children basically disappearing over the horizon. Wow. And that was basically how I felt. You know, I felt dehumanized. I felt you know, strip, well, just stripped of all humani humility, humanity, can't even talk, stripped of humanity, um, totally hopeless, totally helpless. I didn't see any future whatsoever. And I spent a great deal of time uh, planning my suicide back then. And thankfully, somebody interrupted me one day when I was in the process of going through with it. And in prison. so then I, this was when I was first in jail, first okay. in jail that first year. Yep. So after that, you know, it becomes an exercise in how do you create hope? How do you, how do you create something to emotionally sustain yourself just to get yourself you know, emotionally stable, let alone anybody around you. I mean, you have to, you have to get your help yourself there first. And, you know, that took a few years. And originally my matrix was five years and I, you know, I had no criminal background. Um, I was a model inmate, all that kind of crap. And I was told to expect to get out at five years. So we were pretty shocked when the board you know, told us, nope, it's going to be all 15 and don't bother us again, you know, kind of attitude. I don't think I spoke to anybody for about six months, you know, after that and just was kind of in a daze. But then we had blizzards and 
I wanted, I had the urge to do something big. And so I started sculpting large sea creatures and lizards and dragons and things out of snow out in the yard. And the first time I did that, everybody was like, oh, you can't do that. You know, they'll, they'll come and knock it down. You'll be in trouble. Uh, I said, well, we'll see. And I just kept going. And sure enough, you know, the perimeter cops are slowing down. And I can see them on the radios. And here comes an officer coming out. And he stands there with his, you know, hands on his hips. And he says, well, perimeter just called. And I've been instructed to knock your snowman down. And he looks it up and down. This is about a 40-foot-long angler fish. And he says, clearly, this is not a snowman. I think you should continue. <laughs> so from that point on, I actually had officers, you know, making suggestions about what they would like to see me sculpt. And I just, that was kind of my release because nobody else wanted to be out there when it was, you know, 10 below zero in... <laughs> you know, snow up to your knees. Oh, what so I would I'm, give for photos of those pieces. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so I kept kept at that until I was felt like I could cope with other human beings and and but I really did isolate quite a bit. And at one point I was actually in um a suicide like isolation observation cell for about four months. I was in there for three months and then I was caught corresponding with a male inmate and uh, they came by with a write-up and I asked them what my punishment was and they're like, I'm month in solitary. I was like, so basically another month of this? Awesome. <laughs> oh man, there's just, it's, you just cannot overstate how uh, de how demoralizing and profound the trauma is of being punished for being abused yeah. and then being abused yeah. on top of that. I mean, it's just no oh, no yeah. surprise that you would be you would find yourself at a place once or multiple times of wanting to give up hope because it's just so nonsensical. Yeah. The the punishment just. <laughs> It's, it's beyond, you know, we certainly. Oh, I just, I felt like the state of Utah was personally picking up where my husband left off. And kind of with an extra vengeance. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, the, the prosecutors were quoted in the media as saying that, that it may very well have been self-defense. But what we'll never know is what she must have said to provoke the need to defend herself. Well, you know, and it just it's like, what century do we live in yeah. that that's okay? Wow. Yeah. I question <laughs> the century we live in a lot, but uh, <laughs> definitely that is some seriously, seriously uninformed and sexist um, behavior. And it's just beyond. So it's no surprise that you found yourself in incredibly dark places um, and solitary for suicide watch is also completely inhumane, but these are all, you know, topics we could go on and on about. Um, so after, uh, so tell us kind of how, where, what are you doing now? How's the fish house? How's the real fish house coming? Well, I had 600 feet of steel delivered last week to use as a framework um, I'm going to do some. I'm going to do some small uh, renditions of it first. Kind of table ha tabletop fish houses, <laughs> just to kind of work out some of the construction details. Um, I am in process of stripping the frame off of this Dodge, and I ha I need to order a new carburetor and some gaskets and whatnot to get the motor in better running shape but I've already gutted the interior and so now it's a matter of peeling all the aluminum siding off and then creating kind of a bone structure to work from and I'm contemplating melting down all the aluminum siding and doing some uh, 
sand casting sculptures with it and using that as a means to help support the project monetarily. Very cool. Yeah, I, I read that you're, you're thinking about doing some kind of LED lighting uh, to kind of make it like a cuttlefish on the outside. Yeah, I want to do some sort of interactive lighting that is embedded in the fiberglass scales that I'm going to create so that, you know, if you have music playing or if people are talking, um, it will react as far as motion and colors to whatever's going on around it. I just, the bioluminescence of sea animals just really fascinates me i just love that yeah i just love sea animals in general i just actually sent meg a picture <laughs> of a sea animal not that long ago um, <laughs> i can confirm dick's love yes. of these creatures <laughs> i do very much I, uh, would this be your first time working with actually like electricity and stuff from one of your sculptures or have you done that before yeah no this will be a first time but you know pretty much everything i do is a first time it's like that welded piece that I did. That was the first time. And I just, I don't seem to be able to do anything really small. Um, <laughs> most or, of and you don't seem to be hindered by the fact that you may not actually have a skill yet. This is correct. Um, it's impressive. Well, it's always been kind of a, an interesting thing with me where I have dreams about the project. I'll have a dream of the project from beginning to end. And it's almost like watching a video of how to do something. And um, when I wake up, I feel confident that I, I know what to do. And that's the way everything has always been for me. I mean, And then it's just a matter of, okay, getting online and, and figuring out where the materials can be ordered from. I can't imagine a better definition for artist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if it's not broke, don't fix yeah. it. Um, so, Carol, you uh, you have five children, and you also are a grandmother of three now. Is that correct? That is correct. I have three teenage daughters. Or excuse me, three teenage granddaughters. Oh. The oldest one is sixteen. So are, are any of your children or grandchildren kind of following your footsteps at all or getting bit by the art bug? Or? They all have talent, and my granddaughters express it quite a bit, my oldest one especially. Um, my, I have a son who has a fabrication studio in Salt Lake called Rusted Friends, and he's kind of like a creative genius in his own right, and he loves building things and tinkering with things and... You know, I, every now and then we talk and kind of pick each other's brains about best ways to accomplish certain things. So I consider him a resource, you know, at, at this point in my life. Um, I have a daughter that's a neurosurgery charge nurse up in Salt Lake. So, you know, she's got her hands full right now. And uh, a daughter that's a performer and designer in Salt Lake, in the, in the gothic world. So they're just kind of all over the place with their, with their talents, but they're all very creative and all very intelligent. And I'm just really blessed to have awesome kids. Sounds yeah, like we're so. pretty blessed to have a brave, creative mother like you, honestly. Absolutely. I think, you know, the serving time in prison is quite stigmatized. It is definitely difficult for families. The narrative can so easily be that you, the person who goes to prison, is entirely to blame for what has happened. Yep. And to have, you know, to have any semblance and ability to shift that narrative, to give it more nuance and dimension, to understand that the system is not as simple as it's purported to be, I think is really powerful work. And it, you know, often starts with how we explain what's going on to our kids. Yes, this is, this is very true. Yeah, because once you have been labeled as a felon, people just pretty much dismiss you you know you do not have value anymore your you know your opinion on anything is is suspect your motive for everything is suspect 
you know, even having no criminal history whatsoever, you know, people treat me like they're going to have to count the silverware every time I come in and out of their house or if they even allow me anywhere near their house. You know, they, people don't want to give you any personal information. They don't, they don't want to interact with you. It's just, you know, it, it's like you have, you know, the plague or something. When in fact you desperately need compassion, empathy, and understanding, even more so having been through the meat grinder that is this, the justice system, um, you know, the, the ways that it isolates folks further is unconscionable. Yes, I agree. It is such a challenge to get people to look at the things that we have in common rather than the things that have happened to us that set us apart. And then art becomes this kind of, you know, of course, sort of more universal visual language. That seems to be yes. a really awesome way to both, you know, avoid and connect with people like you were talking about with the, uh, the snowfish. Um, it's a great way to be with yourself, your own thoughts, your creativity, your unique way of seeing the world and reorganizing it. Um, and then also a language that you can actually put out into the world and connect with people in a deep and special way. How did, how do you feel like you've experienced, you know, do you ex feel like you've experienced that and how? That has happened in kind of two different ways. It's, it's like my, my graphics that have to do with the trauma of prison, you know, make people think. And, you know, my daughter mentioned that she, she took one of my pieces to an exhibit and she said people would come and just stand in front of it and she would see tears running down their face. So that was very powerful from that standpoint. And that gets a lot of attention. And those are some of the pieces that... Um, were part of Nicole Wood's um, project that was at the Museum of Modern Art in uh, Washington, or not Washington, New York City. That The opening to that was supposed to be the first weekend in April. Um, and then I had, and then with the crochet pieces that are more, they're, they're big and they're whimsical and they're bright. Those pieces, Wendy has uh, shepherded through a series of exhibits and some of them are still related to prison, but some of them are just, you know, fun, fun to be around. And she found that a group of autistic, uh, non-speaking adult students were very excited by the colors and textures. And they wrote a lot of poetry after they um, spent time with some of my work. And so it was really interesting to see, you know, people... They'll respond to one part of it just because it's it's visually appealing, but then they start actually looking at the the meaning behind it, and so it does create an expanded dialogue that you wouldn't otherwise have. What a gift for you and for you know the world at large to be able to experience what's coming out of your life experience through your art. Thank you for doing the work. Oh, you're welcome. Well, I don't know how to do anything. <laughs> I have to do it. Because <laughs> other than that, I'm just, a, at this point, I'm just a chicken mommy. <laughs> so uh, we're about to wrap up here. Dick, do you have any final questions? Yeah, yeah. I have a big question coming up right now. Uh, do it. So, Carol, th and this is something that, you know, since I was a kid, I always wished that I could have done. Um, one of the things when you were in... Um, Utah State Prison is that every Christmas you were able to um, create intricate gingerbread villages. Oh, yeah. Um, and I always wish when I was a kid, I was able to do that. My parents would never buy me the supplies or anything like that. But um, I, I was really curious about how that was even possible, because when I was in when I was in jail, I couldn't even get like an extra piece of cake or anything like that. But <laughs> you are able to amass uh, you know, unless I was working in the kitchen or something like that, you know, how how did that come about? Made it out of graham crackers. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, just like <laughs> little salt packets, salt and pepper packets. <laughs> but uh, yeah, well, can you just elaborate a little bit on that, girl, on how that how that came about and just how well, yeah. what the size of those were? There was a lieutenant over the kitchen um, named well, it was Lieutenant Vila Mill, and. 
this was his pet project was to do these these elaborate gingerbread pieces for um the parade of trees in salt lake city and and so they would go to these exhibits and be auctioned off to corporations and you know for thousands of dollars to benefit the home i think it was the road home um the homeless shelter there was different charities different years but i had just barely been in population for oh i think a couple of weeks and you know word got out that i was an artist and so i get this message from the kitchens saying um if you're a sculptor come to the kitchen you know vila wants to meet you so one of the days that a movement was open i went down there and he was doing this big um kind of European village with the castle. And he said, you know, I would really like to have a dragon. Do you know how to sculpt a dragon? And I said, oh yeah, that's, that's kind of like a specialty here. <laughs> and he said, well, could you make me like a little dragon? And I looked at the thing and I said, or <laughs> how about if we have a dragon that complete, that's like coming up behind this thing, it's like wrapped around your castle so that the head's coming around, breathing fire, the wings are outspread behind the castle and the tail kind of encircles the entire thing. And it's got like one paw up on a, on a turret. And he kind of stood back and looked at me and he says, you could do that? And I said, oh yeah, sure, no problem. Cause I have never worked in gingerbread or anything in my entire life. And believe me, working with food is a lot more difficult than working in bronze because it does not stay where you put it. <laughs> it is contingent on uh, humidity, heat, um, somebody bumping it, somebody deciding to snap a piece off and eating it. You know, there's, there's a lot of peril in working with food products. But he got a special um, pass for me to come in when the AM culinary workers did because I was still a lower lock. I wasn't allowed out, you know, past like four o'clock in the afternoon. So at three o'clock in the morning, I would go to the kitchen and he had a work area set up for me. And, um, and I started building pieces um, to accentuate his vision. So that, that continued the entire time I was, I was there. And uh, when I went up to the jail, it was kind of the same thing where the the sergeant came up to me and said, I hear, you know, gingerbread can, and I want to win. <laughs> I said, okay, I will make sure you win. <laughs> and uh, so that's, that was kind of the, the impetus of all that. Oh, that's great to hear. Um, Carol, thank you so much for joining us today. I uh, would love to have you back sometime. Check on you, see how the fish house is coming along. If that's cool with you. That'd be um, awesome. Yeah. Uh, once again, uh, Represent Carol Alden, JustinsArtsCoalition.org. Check out some of her work. Definitely recommend you Google Carol Alden's artwork. It's, I mean, there's so many different incredible pieces. And, stunning. Uh, yeah, absolutely stunning. Uh, and on that note, thank you, Meg. Thank you, Alon. Uh, looking forward to seeing you guys next week. Check out Felony Inc. Podcast every 10 a.m. or every Friday at 10 a.m. StartupRadioNetwork.com. And uh, until next time. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.